I found two identical snowflakes, but they melted. Snowshoes aren't shoes made of snow, those are called something else. Shoveling snow is a good way to make some extra cash and have a heart attack. Not all snowmen are abominations. The expression skating on thin ice means having the most fun. Icicles remind me of bland popsicles. Sled ramps sound fun, but they hurt your rear end. Don't forget to account for the wind chill factor, Mr. No Gloves. So many stars. Welcome now to Out of All Doors. Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Durant. Out of All Doors is a show about the outdoors written, recorded, and distributed by a host of people united by their love of the outdoors. It's really that simple. It's not some complex, hard-to-define concept. We made it broad on purpose so that I wouldn't have to do a bunch of explaining at the beginning of every episode, which I just realized is exactly what's happening, and that bothers me. That bothers me a lot, actually. I'm actually seething. To start this episode, let's talk about snow. A lot of people use snow as an excuse for staying indoors. They find it cold, wet, slippery, and inconvenient. But we at Out of Old Doors don't believe in any excuses for staying indoors, not even imprisonment, which is why we always support any attempt by convicts to escape confinement. It's not that we oppose justice, of course. If the convicts were kept outside in large open-air pens, we'd be all in favor of keeping them there for the duration of their sentences. But the larger point is that you shouldn't let snow or sleet or ice keep you indoors. And listen, we all know the myriad outdoor activities available to you in the snow. Skiing, sledding, snowball fights. I'm not going to list a fourth, but there are many more. Snowboarding. Okay, that was a fourth, which I said I wasn't going to list, but... Oh, ice skating, that's another. Although snow isn't required for that one. Just sub-freezing weather in a body of water or a man-made ice skating rink. Although sometimes those are indoors. The use of which I, of course, would never endorse. But the larger point is that snowmobiling is also on the list. And that's not so much the larger point as it is just another activity on the list. Hunting. People do that in the snow. Just think about it in terms of tracking with the footprints and blood trails. I'm seriously not trying to just keep listing outdoor activities you can do in the snow and ice, but speaking of ice, what about ice climbing? You're saying you think sitting inside is objectively better than ice climbing? I think it's called ice climbing. Spelunking. There's no snow in caves, but that's my point. Snow can't get down there, so if you hate snow so much, why aren't you spending your whole winter spelunking? I consider caves outdoors, as any reasonable person would, even though they put restaurants in them sometimes and gift shops. We've gotten pretty far afield of the topic I wanted to address in this episode's introduction, but at this point it would be folly not to mention figure skating, bobsledding, the luge, ski jumping, cross-country skiing, and yes, I'm well aware that these are all Winter Olympic events, but why can't you do them too? Better yet, why can't you be in the Winter Olympics? Sure, they only come around every four years, but you spend the rest of that time training outside in the snow. You move somewhere that has snow 365 days a year, and you're outside in it all day, training to be a winter Olympian. In fact, the days when there isn't snow are the days you consider staying inside. How's that for a paradigm shift? I'm trying to remember what I was originally going to say. I'm going to briefly mention the Winter X Games, which also feature many outdoor activities of the more extreme variety, like the snowboard superpipe, snowboard slope style, and probably something called snowboard freestyle, where you just do whatever on your snowboard outside in the snow, like on a big hill with jumps and rails and stuff, and then judges rate you, and whoever has the highest rating gets first place in snowboard freestyle at that year's Winter X Games. 
Where would thrilling events like the Winter X Games be if everyone in the world just looked outside and said, uh-oh, there's snow out there. Guess I'll just stay inside until I die or the snow melts, whichever comes first. There are people who say or at least think exactly this, and many of them die before the snow melts, lying in their own beds surrounded by loved ones and knickknacks and four walls. It's horrible. You know what else you can do in the snow? Just take a walk. I'm 99% sure you either own boots or know where to get some. Use them. Did I mention the luge? It's an Olympic event. I probably mentioned it during the part where I was talking about the events in the Winter Olympics. If not, I apologize for the oversight, because the luge is something you can do outdoors in snow and ice as long as you have the resources to make a good luge track. And if you don't, you could use Kickstarter to raise the funds to make a good luge track. I shouldn't have to hold your hand every step of the way like this. It's not my job to do a bunch of financial planning so all you listeners can build luge tracks. If you can't figure out how to use Kickstarter, well, I'm going to be sarcastic here for a second, but maybe you should just ask Santa for a luge track. Maybe you should just ask Santa. In conclusion, you could also make snow angels. Now it's time for the rest of the episode. Let's begin, shall we? Submitted by friend of the show, out of all doorsman, Matt Martin. These are the five people you meet at every polar plunge. Number one is the nudist. While he's technically more without clothes than nude, this polar bear dives happily into the freezing cold water before emerging, gasping for air and grunting on and on about the purity of the experience. It's common for the participating bear to dive back under in search of penguins or other prey that may be swimming beneath the ice. After he's done looking for food, this nudist will remain unclothed, often licking his paws or trundling off into the Arctic wasteland. Number two is the cannonball enthusiast. This polar plunge participant will not only jump once into the freezing cold water, but will jump again and again, always in a cannonball, in order to splash the other bears around him. While often considered a joker or a clown, the cannonball enthusiast is seen by some as a pest who splashes cold water all over dry fur and scares potential prey away with his playful grunting. Number three is the extreme jumper. The extreme jumper will not stop grunting about his past accomplishments and harrowing adventures, whether they be disemboweling a bull elephant seal or drifting on an ice floe for weeks on end and living to grunt about it. The extreme jumper doesn't even seem to be particularly interested in the plunge itself except as a venue to grunt about his past accomplishments, all of which outshine the polar plunge. The extreme jumper is best avoided as he often bites if his stories are called into question. Number four is the cub. A junior jumper, the cub is a younger participant attending his first polar plunge. The cub's parents usually invite him to come and so he follows his parents' leads, putting on his favorite superhero bathing suit and diving in after mom or dad, often holding his nose with his fingers as he plunges. The cub's reactions are often the funniest as they shriek and flail, emerging from the ice and wrapping their goose-bumped bodies in mom's beach towel before running back to the car and hiding in the back seat. While cubs often say they'll never, ever, never do the polar plunge again, You'll be surprised how often you see them there the next year, a little taller, ready to dive under again. A tradition is established and cemented. And number five is the polar bearer. A true friend of the polar plunge spirit, the polar bearer comes every year bearing gifts for the other plungers, most often varieties of fish and even occasionally some penguin entrails. The polar bearer will stand on his hind legs and grunt merrily to announce himself before presenting his feast to all those attending. The polar bearer will sometimes even take a plunge himself, 
but be careful to watch your cubs around the polar bearer as he's been known to gut them and feast on the steaming remains. Alright listeners, I swear I do not intend to make this a regular segment, but Maya, the woman who commandeered the web address for our old Out of All Doors blog, is at it again and I just can't let it slide. I need your support on this. She won't answer any of my emails and I email her multiple times daily, but she's waging war on Out of All Doors. There's really no other way to describe it. I mean, I feel like reading this garbage on the show for you listeners to hear pollutes the show in a way, but I also feel like if I don't call her out, then I then we're just allowing her to bully us, and we can't allow that. She already stole our blog URL from us, and in order to use it for nefarious purposes, I'm not going to let her do so without comment from us. Every out-of-all-doorsman and out-of-all-doors woman needs to know what Maya is doing in our name. Making you aware is the first step toward banding together to stop her. Maybe if you get as mad as I am, then we can pool that anger, channel it, and stop this travesty before it goes any further. Anyway, so our latest post is stomach churning, so prepare yourselves because I'm about to read it to you. So so here we go. Three decorative holiday recommendations. <laughs> I love the holidays. Who doesn't? But it's always irked me how outdoor-centric Christmas sentiments are. I'm not sure it's ever lovely weather for a sleigh ride together with anyone, but in December... You might as well drive that sleigh right to the emergency room to treat the frostbite that will be nipping at our noses. That's why I'm so excited to tell you about these three great indoor-themed Christmas decorations I've found. (laughs) Number one, earnestly ersatz holiday trees. I don't need to tell any of you that artificial Christmas trees beat the needles off real ones, but even fake trees leave a lot to be desired, even though they're made of safe hypoallergenic plastic and metal, they're made to look like prickly, itch-inducing pine trees. The absurdity of this is not lost on our good friends at Earnestly Ersatz. Instead of artificial real trees, they've created the world's first real artificial tree. No pretense here. These trees are refreshingly straightforward about the fact that they aren't trees and don't want to be. (sighs) Number two, Tableau Globes by the Kitsch Ditch. I've never understood snow globes. The poor little characters under the glass are already trapped forever outside in the freezing cold. Why would I want to make their miserable lives even worse by dousing them with snow? But my disdain for globes was finally lifted when I was browsing for trinkets at buycurios.com. Okay, listen, I have to interject and say buycurios is B-U-Y-C-U-R-I-O-S dot com. And Maya is apparently oblivious. Okay, whatever. Browsing for trinkets at buycurios.com and came across these 100% snow free tableau globes. Each one depicts a different indoor Christmas scene, and they've got dozens. One holds an inviting guest bedroom, exquisitely decorated for the holidays. A young man is lying on his stomach on the bed, peering behind it in search of an outlet. Shake it up and watch with glee as the suitcase and throw pillows tumble through the air. Another one shows a family just sitting down to a lovely Christmas meal. Shake the globe and puffs of pet hair rise up out of the carpet beneath the table. Looks like you're not the only one who didn't have time to clean before the guests arrived. This one has a special bonus. Push the button on the bottom and hear the family squabble about whether to keep the TV on during dinner. My favorite, though, has to be the New Year's Tableau Globe. 
A sweet elderly couple sits hand in hand on the couch, shake it up, and they jolt awake, realize it's only 9.30, and abandon their hopes of watching the ball drop as they shuffle off to bed. (sighs) Three, Bethlehem Presbyterian Hospital Nativity Set by Iconocraft. This beautiful replica of a serene suburban hospital will look great on your mantle, and you'll breathe easy knowing that somewhere in there a properly anesthetized Virgin Mary has just borne unto us a savior. Camels definitely not included. I mean, this just speaks for itself. I don't want to add anything else. Let's just move on before I break one of my own ribs to take my mind off of this. The saint was stricken down with a mysterious illness this month, but somehow that still didn't stop him from discovering one new beast and sending me one of his famous field sketches of it. I'll describe the field sketch for you now, and then we'll listen in as the saint himself shares his field notes on this brand new beast with us. The sketch is sparse, lots of white space. The scene is that of a frozen pond, I think, and there are three holes in the ice with long stalks sticking up through them, flaring at the ends. Two of the stalks are pointed straight up, erect, but one is slumped to the side and is lying on the ice. Long mouth. One time when I was walking on the ice on a frozen lake, I saw what I thought was a plant. Tall, skinny, sticking up out of the hole from a fisher's hole in the ice. I walked up, didn't have to bend over at all, just could reach out and put my finger in the groove at the top of what I thought was the plant but suddenly I realized that it wasn't a plant but rather was alive. This suffocated the long mouth and it began to sink. I bent over to catch it by its mouth and tugged to try to get it up through the hole but whatever was underneath the ice was too broad for me to pull it to safety. Nearby, I could see two other longmouth mouths sticking out of the ice holes, which had mostly sealed shut from the fissure that hasn't been there for a long time. And so I suspect that they cannot move and are just forced to stay there and breathe and wait until the entirety of the ice melt in spring. Rather than touching those other longmouths, I stopped and watched them from a distance. We follow the train tracks as they wind their way through forests and fallow fields. Some of us walk on the rails like graceless gymnasts on balancing beams. The sky is as gray as a tooth filling. Winter is nigh. In fact, it's so nigh that it's actually here, or will be soon when it gets nigher. We come to a bridge, then, the train tracks running across it to the other side of a ravine. But we do not cross the bridge. We veer down the slope, under the bridge, in the shadow of the bridge. And over our heads, clinging to the iron girders, they are there. Not thousands, not hundreds, maybe only a few dozen. But they are there, and we have entered the battery. The bat with one wing crawls along the forest floor, a glaze of wet snow coating all and everything, including the eastern side of all the tree trunks. And more snow falls on top of the already fallen snow, and accumulation does thereby occur. 
The one-winged bat has a glaze of wet snow on her body as well, on her head, on her one wing. On the bat's left side, the one without the wing, she still has her skinny arm and hand, but, as I said, no wing. Her right side is the one with the wing, and an above-average wing at that. But for all of its above-average qualities, the bat's one wing does not enable her to fly, and it is an actual hindrance to crawling, especially in accumulating snow. The one-winged bat, every movement laborious in her weakened state, leaves a strange trail through those woods in that snow, and she has no destination in mind. She is weak, thirsty, hungry, dazed, and abandoned. She collapses, and, in a state not dissimilar to death, she has three visions. In the first vision, a kettle of water boils over a fire and two men in parkas sit nearby on the two halves of a split cinder block. Snow falls thickly, many flakes meet their instantaneous ends in the kettle. Beside the men, frozen in a misshapen block of ice, is a bat. One of the men rises from his half of the broken cinder block and, with big old tongs, lifts the block of ice with the bat inside of it and lowers it into the boiling water. Then he tosses the tongs into the snow where they hiss prissily as he returns to his seat. The men wait. The kettle begins to gurgle and steam and foam and froth. The men stand, their faces in the firelight visible only from nose to forehead. The fire begins to billow black smoke up around the kettle, hiding it from view. Then the smoke subsides and the water in the kettle is still. The men approach the kettle, which is empty save for the water. One man removes his glove and touches the water with his forefinger. It is bitterly cold. Both men look up and see nothing but heavy flakes falling toward them out of blackness. Their eyelashes snag the snowflakes, and there the flakes melt not. In the second vision, a low stone wall splits a vast field of white in twain. A perfect drift of snow has formed against the wall's eastern side. A bright winter sun shines down sans warmth upon the snow, and the glare has the potential to blind, especially those who are easily blinded. A lone mosquito flies merrily along. This mosquito is perhaps a superb hero to his kind. A mosquito who does not die instantly in the cold. A mosquito who spends winter as a solitary wanderer, seeing things no other mosquito has ever seen. As the mosquito passes over the wall, a portion of the drift shifts, then rises up into the air and engulfs the mosquito, and the mosquito is gone. The white shape then continues up into the agonizingly blue sky, its dimensions impossible to estimate, but it is large, and it is white, and it is almost certainly a bat. The sky is too bright, look away, eyes closed, spots of undulating color, another glance, no, far too bright. But where will the huge white bat, if that indeed be what it was, find more to eat? Surely there are few mosquitoes like the one it just ate, very few, if any, unless perhaps that unique mosquito possesses qualities that, when consumed, can sustain the huge white bat for weeks or months or years or a lifetime, an insectoid fountain of youth, winged and winterproof, but now eaten, its rejuvenative properties perhaps already at work within the huge white bat's bones and blood and very spirit. In the third vision, the bat with one wing lies cold and alone and dying in a snowy woods with her eyes closed, awaiting oblivion. A jangling sound causes her to open her eyes. There, a short distance away, she sees a sleigh that appears to have been entirely carved from one piece of dense black wood. Eight fruit bats are harnessed to the sleigh, standing now in the snow with their chests heaving, eyes downcast, waiting. A man looms over the one-winged bat, at least eight feet tall. 
He wears a blood-red robe that stops just short of his pale, bare feet. Only the middle toe on his left foot has a toenail. The hood of his robe is pulled up around his gaunt face and a white beard hangs down almost to his waist. On top of his head is a circlet of rare forest plants of winter, plucked from regions of ever-present ice, woven and ornamented with deep red berries dripping sour juice. And his eyes are like unmined coal buried in the depths of the earth, never to be burned, never to be gathered, never even to be found. You are not a partial bat, he croaks, his voice like the groaning of a glacier. You are a whole bat with one wing. A second wing will make you no more whole. But, nevertheless awake, a second wing approaches. The bat with one wing awakens to find that her hunger and thirst and exhaustion and pain remain but not her isolation. For all around her in the snow, bats with two heads are landing with whooshes and soft thuds and rustling wings. These new bats, she notices, in addition to their two heads, also have four legs and strangely broad bodies. No. As her wits return, she realizes that these are not mutant bats. These are pairs of bats, each with one wing. One with a left wing, one with a right wing. Clinging together with their non-winged arms, flapping in unison in order to fly. And she looks up and she sees one of these matched pairs circling down toward her amidst the falling snow. And beneath this pair, firmly held in their four feet, is a bat with no wing at all on its left side, and one perfect wing on its right. Everybody up. Everybody, that means all of you. I don't want to go either, but I promised them we'd be home for Christmas dinner as long as Christmas dinner was guaranteed to be good. And they did guarantee that it would be good, so we need to at least go see if it's actually good. And then I think we're doing a gift exchange. But before we let our focus shift to Christmas dinner and the ensuing gift exchange, let's maintain our focus on what we've experienced here as we march out from under the bridge and up the ravine to the railroad tracks and behind us leave the battery. It's time now to check in with Harrison Blum as he seeks to become a real amateur birdwatcher and maybe impress a certain someone along the way. Hello, listeners and Eleanor. Let me start by wishing you all a happy holiday. May your days be merry and bright. And may all your Christmases be. It's that time of year for everything to be fine, and it is. I'm heating the apartment for one, so I have plenty of money for gifts for myself. And my brother Don will be in town on the 28th, so we'll probably get lunch. I bought him Birds of the Midwest for Christmas. So perhaps we'll have something to discuss while we wait for our sandwiches. He listened to the first episode of Alvo Doors, and while I was not in that particular one, he had very nice things to say about the podcast. He was apparently unable to download more recent episodes to his phone and his work computers for work. He's really into cereal right now, so that's occupying a lot of his mental real estate. Well, timelines and maps and online conjecturing, I'm sure he's been busy. 
He promises to get to these later episodes, however. So, hello, Don. I hope we have more had an enjoyable lunch together. And thanks to all of you for the wonderful three months of partridges. Partridge. Partridge. Part. Patronage. Patronage, there it is. Patronage. I apologize. An accurate slip of the tongue, I suppose, considering the subject matter. The partridge is, after all, a noble, albeit lonely bird, perched quietly in his pear tree, while the two turtle doves make plans for a post-holiday trip to Phoenix to see John's daughter from a previous marriage. Five golden rings, one of which you leave on the kitchen counter, right atop a note that says, out of ham. I don't get the rings personally. You're just singing about birds. Where do the birds go? You have birds then with that ring business. You forget about the birds for a second. And then suddenly it's all geese laying and swans are swimming again. Like, oh yeah, the birds. I'm not quite done with the birds yet. Birds are great. I should call the birds. I should call Harrison at 6 p.m. on a Sunday while I'm scotch drunk at my sister's MBA graduation dinner. I should ask him if he remembers the camping trip that I hang up before I can say, of course I do. Then, as if that call never happened, the eight maids are milking, and the dancing. Twelve Johns in finance. There's a song, no birds. There's no birds at all. Unless you work backwards, I guess. You get more birds if you walk backwards. But no matter which way you end up, you've either got a whole lot of drummers or only one partridge. No one ever says, hey, that partridge over there. See him? He's been eating right. He's been walking to the store. He's finally found some pants that adequately fit his body shape. Let's find him another partridge. Well, they just finish that song and start singing Jingle Bells. Or they drink too much eggnog and start talking into this thing. Merry Christmas, everyone. I hope you enjoy Phoenix. Love Harrison. Some of you are probably aware of the little-known work of Natch Features, but most of you are probably not, and that's a shame in a way. Natch Features is no longer making films, of course, but during their heyday, they were releasing a few dozen straight-to-video releases every month. Yes, you heard right, every month. They had a whole stable of directors and actors who just rotated from project to project, often writing a script, casting, shooting, editing, and releasing within a two-week period. And best of all, their films were all about the outdoors. You see, Natch is short for naturally, which is long for natural, which is long for nature. And nature is found primarily outdoors, which is short for out of all doors. It's simple arithmetic. Now, I grew up on the films of Natch Features, and they were very formative for me, and I know the same is true for several of our contributors as well, so I'd be delighted if some of them wanted to write in and discuss a few of their favorites. 
But today I'm going to review two of Natch Feature's classic Christmas films and then recommend that you either go through the enormous hassle of tracking down a copy and paying the exorbitant price to own it so you can watch it, or I'll recommend that you just skip it, which again is nearly impossible not to do. Alright, so the first Natch Feature classic Christmas film I'm going to review today is Holla Dangerous. Now, this is one of those movies where you're going to have to suspend your disbelief a little because all the characters are wearing wigs as beards and at least half of the mountain men are the director's teenage daughters trying to talk in low voices and sending each other into giggling fits, which undermines a few of the scenes that are meant to be suspenseful, tense, terrifying, romantic, sobering, uplifting, expository, and just sort of neutral. I suppose it's telling that my favorite scene is the one with the least giggling. Two of the mountain men who are actually played by men exchange harsh words by the light of a dying lantern as a trained otter tries to open a clam for comic relief. I don't want to spoil anything, but spoiler alert, giggling does ultimately spoil the scene. Spoiler alert, the spoilers are again the director's spoiled daughters. The movie is considered one of Natch Feature's classic Christmas films because the story is about how mountain men discovered Christmas, but how they went through many dangers to do so, giggling pretty much all the way, unfortunately, which is why I have to recommend that you not expend the massive amount of energy and resources necessary to watch it. The second movie I want to talk about today of uh, Natch Feature's classic Christmas films is The Christmas Minds. This movie sounds intriguing, and parts of it definitely are, like the concept of sending people down into Christmas mines where they have to use pickaxes and dynamite to extract this special ore called, you guessed it, Christmas. They probably should have given it a name like Christmasanium or Christmasorium or Christmasilium or something, but they didn't, so that definitely leads to confusion. There's some other things that lead to confusion too. For example, the main character is inaudible throughout the film. Another example of one of the film's confusing elements is that once the people mine enough Christmas out of the Christmas mines, then it's Christmas. So Christmas doesn't seem tied to a specific date at all, so theoretically, if they didn't mine Christmas fast enough, then Christmas might not come until, like, March. And then about two-thirds of the way through the movie, there's a cave-in in the Christmas mines, and townsfolk keep talking about how they hear someone in the mines screaming for help. But as the viewer, you hear nothing. So then you come to the conclusion that it must be the main character since he's been inaudible to you this whole time for some reason. So then as more and more townspeople talk about how loud the cries for help are, and then as they start yelling their lines to each other as if struggling to be heard over the cries for help, you start thinking, is this director messing with me? When I was a kid, I wrote a letter to Natch Features asking that very question, and they responded with a form letter thanking me for my generous financial contribution and assuring me that it was generous people like myself who made the continued existence of Natch Features a possibility. So anyway, this is another Natch Features film that you shouldn't drive yourself to the brink of madness to see, which is what seeing it would probably require. So just go on with your life. Alright, so just to recap, this week I advised you not to make any attempt to see either of these Natch Features classic Christmas films, not because they're not very good, but because they would require a near superhuman effort to obtain. But there are plenty more Natch Features films, trust me. Will any of them be worth fighting against impossible odds to see? Tune into future episodes to find out. Uh, there's no Squall Takes the Bait this time. We tried to record one, but my computer failed us. But Matt and I knew that Squall has been surreptitiously recording the segments on his end as well for no clear purpose. 
So although he initially denied that he had done so, I was able to negotiate a deal with him where I would do something for him, and he would upload his recording of the most recent Squall Takes the Bait so I could see if it was usable for the podcast. Well, we went to all that trouble, and when I finally downloaded Squall's recording, it was 53 minutes of low hissing noises. He had not listened to it at all before uploading it. When I called him up and told him what had happened, he said, well, so much for that then. Anyway, you missed out on some good stuff. Me and Matt gave him hypothetical scenarios about jocks, his least favorite class of people trying to mess with him while he tries to fish. His solution to every scenario was to use explosive mines, eventually culminating in a scene in which he had mined the entire lake and was punching jock fish out of the air as they attempted to leap into his boat to pants him. There was also a part where Squall and I said different forms of the word happen back and forth to each other for a while while Matt laughed until crying, and then... At the end of the segment, Squall went from spouting loathsome misogyny to wishing all of our listeners a Merry Christmas within the same sentence. I'm not a father myself, but from what I gather, it can be pretty grueling. Daughters, it seems, are mostly fine doing whatever they do, but sons, well, sons can be awfully disappointing, especially when it comes to the outdoors. Many sons these days just don't get it, and that can be very discouraging for a father, especially for a father who grew up loving the outdoors and who continues to love the outdoors to this day and who won't be able to ever truly feel accomplished as a father until he instills that love of the outdoors in his son, which many times can seem like it will never ever happen and honestly it might not so these fathers may be cursed to spend the rest of their lives feeling incomplete obviously this is tough for many fathers to take so i thought it might be helpful if i provided an opportunity for them to anonymously vent their struggles and frustrations to write in and then i would read them Uh, because maybe just maybe getting this stuff off of their chest will be their first step toward learning to cope with the sad reality of having a disappointing son who doesn't like the outdoors and so Here are a few anonymous complaints from disappointed fathers concerning their disappointing sons. When my son turned 10, I thought he was ready to go hunting with me and my friends. But as soon as we got to the woods and I handed him a gun, he pointed the gun at us and made us all get back into the truck and take him to the candy store, the ice cream store, and the soda pop store. And guess who had to foot the bill? Me, of course. Otherwise, he would have shot me. Needless to say, I haven't taken him hunting again, and my friends will never let me live this down. At first I was excited when my two young sons told me they'd made a snow fort in our backyard. Making snow forts is one of my most cherished memories from my childhood. But then I saw their snow fort, and it was all wrong. It was built into the side of a hill and reinforced with boulders and felled timber. It was impenetrable. My wife and I have been laying siege to it for days, but with no luck. We haven't even been able to figure out where the entrance is, which makes cutting off their supply line nearly impossible. The snowballs they pelted me with when I tried to negotiate with them under a flag of parley stung, but the disappointment stings far worse. My son can't ride a bike without training wheels, and not just two training wheels. He can only stay upright on his bike with eight training wheels, two on each side of each wheel of his bike, bringing the total to ten wheels. Any fewer wheels and he topples right over and begins calling for bandages before he even hits the ground. Recently, my family and I went to Florida to escape the cold for a few days. On the first day, we spent an afternoon at the beach. I applied a conservative amount of low SPF sunscreen to my boy and guess what? He got a bad sunburn anyway. Christmas is coming up and the only thing on the list he just handed me is higher SPF sunscreen. 
In short, he has permanently disgraced our family name and we will never recover. My son climbed the big tree in our front yard and got stuck in it over and over, so we always had to call the fire department to come get him down. It happened so often that this year at our small town's Christmas tree lighting ceremony, they called our family forward to present us with a gift from the whole town. It was an extension ladder so we could get him down from the tree ourselves. Everyone laughed and applauded and I was ashamed. But it was all a diversion because while we were distracted at the tree lighting ceremony, a small crew of town officials was at our house cutting down the big tree in our front yard. But they did it wrong and it crashed through the ceiling of our house and destroyed my wife's art studio, which is no big loss, believe me. But she's been inconsolable and my son can't sleep through the night because he has nightmares about the new extension ladder sneaking into his room at night and making him climb itself up to a high tree branch and then running away and leaving him there. Not mad. No. Disappointed. Very, very disappointed. Well, as sobering as it is to read these harrowing accounts, I hope that writing in has helped to ease the crushing disappointment some of you fathers are feeling. If you're a father who loves the outdoors and you have a son who has disappointed you by not loving the outdoors enough, feel free to write to us at outofalldoors at gmail.com and share your pain. Hey there, uh, this is Matt Martin again to read some more Felton Hausch. Um, this selection is from his third novel, The Grist Within. Hope you enjoy. <clears throat> Rain came then. The drops fell fatly and splashed in radial hieroglyphs, the desert releasing its dust in response both ground and cloud communicating their soundless and eternal elemental coitus. All of it lost on Kratos. He stared, face blankened, into a found pine cone. Millions more spread visible in all directions, but this one he looked at as if frozen by some cruel medusa. What saw he there, no man hazarded curiosity. The rest of us hunkered down below bough and branch, myself in my favorite crouch, ready at a moment's notice to invade or escape chance's next whim. Would she, chance herself, would she send us a ground swell of Apache raiders, lustful for blood, wholly unsolicited? Or would she send us skyfire and dervish, the likes of both combining into some hellborn chimera, all but flensing our skin from its ungodly bone pile? Or, would she send us a burdensome man-beast to haunt our every day, spooking every horse and giving away our positions with loud exultations of gassy indigestion, who even now sat mesmerized by a very pine cone? The rain ceased not at all. No drop roused Kratos from his idiot rapture. When neither weather nor time could disentrance him, what could we as men do? Considered he the depths of his own mortal futility in the face of callous plant life? Or was he using the cone as a totem for the misbegotten child's hood from which he was wrenched to be here amongst us men? Or was he as inscrutable as the ancient petroglyphs we'd found down valley, their meaning impossible to even a sage's interpretation? Understanding Kratos would be a fool's folly indeed. A second pine cone fell from heaven on high landing on Kratos's head, but he looked on. The rest of us huddled in our low shadows, held fast by the downward pour. 
I came awake flailing, unaware of myself, washing away and away, and there I was, suddenly a breath, gasping and flailing and not with water as it pushed me farther and farther along its mighty course. The flood was flash, and we were caught within it as if in some vile placenta. I surfaced again and then was taken under, as if harassed by a sea beast unknown. It would have been biblical if it wasn't perfectly natural. I looked downstream and saw the river rushing into a rivulet racing its run right into a canyon's ravine. I reached out for the hand of any passing angel and came up with a tree branch instead, an option all the better anyhow. I grasped and pulled my way to the new river's nearest bank, collapsing bodily like a mere fish. I called out to my men and watched as they washed downriver like earth's flotsam, themselves joined by slow horses and pieces of tree. A few of my men had the wherewithal to fight their way ashore, and I blessed them unvocally. Together we made rescue of the others, at one point pushing a tree into the torrent's tides, the plant crashing down like a large man's leg into a rushing, watery river, and were able to salvage the lives of the others. That is, all save one, and that one the least one of us, but with us still, and that one Kratos. There he was, somehow captured by his underpants on a makeshift dam of crashed timbers, a boy in a flood saved by smithereens. Had I the time to ponder the beauty of the Eternal in such a vignette, I would have relished the opportunity, but my men and I had a life to save. I looked to my second and third-hand man, as if to ask, must we? And they replied with a grudging nod apiece. I instructed the men to form a human bridge, man linking to man, wrist to ankle, the first man anchored by the stream edge. The last man grasped mightily at Kratos, winning himself a handful of fat foot, enough to hoist the bustard shoreward. The line of men shivered and waved like an outflung lariat, anchored at the end by its final dead weight. I assumed the day had been won, but I assumed prematurely. Upon being grasped, Kratos thrashed and panicked, bucking like a half-drowned gelding. Bodily, he crawled man to man in the human bridge, unlinking each as he passed. The men were sent freshly into the stream and over the canyon's edge to meet their private dooms in the long dark of death's arms. Each of their eyes lit white as they fell. And as I watched them fall, I saw as well, hovering in midair before it too fell, the lonely silhouette of a single pine cone. Eventually, Kratos crawled ashore, heaving for breath, his body racked by deep gasp. He held out his hand to me. With great slowness, I took it and pulled him up, myself almost toppling into the flood to do so. That was a close one, Kratos called. All of the men except you perished, I told him. They all died, saving you. I'm just glad we made it, said he. What a surprise that water was. I didn't see it this morning. I remained silent, controlling my boot from caving his face in. Hey, by the way, Kratos said, did you happen to see my pine cone? I remembered the spheroid crashing to its death like tree or man. I looked at Kratos' face, cherubic with hope, his nose flushing down its own rivers of snot. No, I told him. 
No, I did not see your pine cone. Gentlemen's Mills is back this Christmas season with a big, thick catalog that they've given the following title, Last-Minute Gifts for the Outdoor Enthusiast for Under $1,000. To further narrow it down for you, we here at Out of All Doors have read this catalog cover to cover, and we're going to tell you some of the highlights. So get those wish lists and checkbooks ready, folks, because here we go. Number one, the snow shovel shovel. Use this shovel to clear that pile of snow shovels out of your garage so you can finally get to the rake pile. A $999 tie, a plain blue tie distinguished by its ability to be almost, but not quite, $1,000. Teeth Creek, the complete DVD box set. Dim and Courteous, a grill-mounted two-mirror system reminding a recipient, when driving, of when they have their brights on. Give unto others the gift of never forgetting their brighting and oncoming driver. Saddle Magnet, keeps you firmly a horse as long as you're remembering to keep your Gentleman's Mills cast iron wallet in your back pocket. Shake and Break, unite the family as any vibration to this box remotely destroys all the other gifts which have been gathered together in a garbage compactor. Your New Name, a prank document that looks official telling the recipient that their name has been legally changed to either Juniper or Kimberly if the recipient's name is already Juniper. Manson's Log, a scoop shovel full of Marilyn Manson's massive backlog of complaint letters. Help a 90s rocker put his foolhardy questions and comments box behind him so he can finally get on with his life. If Gentleman's Mills customers whittle away enough of Manson's Log, we pledge to lower our prices commensurate to our share of the artist's future royalties. Sense and Skunkability, a skunk delivered well-fed and gift-wrapped in pages of Jane Austen's romantic classic. How to Undo Origami, the well-known pamphlet is now a tiny book. It's what's on the outside that counts. A laminated card notifying the reader that the wrapping paper they just destroyed was carried by Charles Lindbergh, Neil Armstrong, and Leif Erikson. Although disputed, a sworn statement from Professor Thomas Ogren attests that the paper was originally decorated by Marco Polo. That's what doors are for. Block any doorway with this bulky gift. Pull the cord and hear Gentleman's Mills founder's pre-recorded words for the fire marshal. Hint of lime. You will be glad of that hint. Cling to it. Spa for two others. Give the gift of giving the gift of a romantic spa package for two. The recipient can rest happily knowing that he or she has received the opportunity to be able to help another couple somewhere realize their spa fantasy. Make your own shirt. Since you never like any of the shirts I get you, here's a box full of fabric so you can make your own shirt for once. Enjoy. The Mistletoad. Hang this festive gift of a live toad wearing a Santa hat above a doorway. The toad urinates on any couple's kissing beneath it. Closure. This concept of a gift, being difficult to quantify or contain, is represented instead by a $15 gift card to Bass Pro Shop. A Lock of Her Hair. A lock of the hair of one of the recipient's past lovers, lovingly gift-wrapped and prepared. The look of longing, sadness, and revulsion on the recipient's face is well worth the extensive lengths to which Gentleman's Mills went to procure this lock of hair. Totally tubular. Despite aggressively colorful and hip outward design and the endorsement of Gnar the Surfing Skeleton, this is in fact a package of tube socks. Xbox One, the box. This box is in brand new condition. 
Pond de Pundit. Trinidad's most beloved political cartoonist is celebrated in puppet form. Skewer the bigwigs like President Anthony Carmona and Minister of Foreign Affairs Winston Dukeron, just like Pond de Pundit does. An exceptionally unique gift. Partially burned AP biology textbook. This textbook was salvaged from the warehouse fire that laid waste to Gentleman's Mills stock in 2006. Give the gift of charred knowledge and help us get rid of our most stubborn backstock. The X Panda. This pillowy costume, painted to resemble a panda, instantly adds girth where you need it most. No ordinary fat suit. This is a fat suit with a panda painted on it. Kwanzaa cap and robe. This cap and robe were designed by ethnography students with the best intentions imaginable. Though the garments are woefully inaccurate in design, fabric, length, color, and style, they do represent the idea of the idea of Kwanzaa. Handmade toy wooden duck. This plastic toy pelican is manufactured at Gentleman's Mills factory for all the good girls and boys. Here on Out of All Doors, we delve into all matters related to nature and the outdoors, but one topic I bet you didn't expect us to cover is hogs. But hogs are indoor creatures, you're probably crying out. How do hogs relate to the outdoors? Well, I think you'll be surprised. Hey, 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 it's Jason time. Time for the guy named Jason and his best pal, Adam. They've got something to say and it's pretty important. So listen up for Jason time. <laughs> Ah, Jason, how did you get in? And what are you doing here? <clears throat> well, I'm here for our bit. I've always been here, man. I've been here since the dawn of time. All right, so for any new listeners, Jason stopped by last episode after writing in to explain how remarkably similar our voices are to each other's. We chatted about it and even sang a little song. I'll just uh, insert a clip here so you can hear some of that. Oh, now we're cooking! So if you say pajamas, and I say pajamas, I'll wear pajamas and give up pajamas. Alright, so that was that. So what I find a little confusing is we sort of covered everything last time. We sound alike, we sang, and uh, now, Jason, you're back. I am back! Back on the attack, voice double man, how are you? How's my voice double, my double drent, double bubble, toil and trouble, dubba dubba U-B-A-E. You drove here to Nebraska again for Maine where you live. How many miles is that? 1,846 miles, uh, but no, 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 I didn't drive this time. I've been here since we did the last episode. You brought me on to the Out of All Doors crew, and I said this is where I need to be. Well, you were a segment guest for an episode. Yeah, and now I'm back for my next installment. Okay, I mean, most of the regular contributors to the podcast don't even live in the state. They send me their stuff. Anyway, you had money saved? <laughs> you had money saved up, so you just moved, and you've just been hanging out for a month? No job? No job! I've been busking. That's my livelihood is singing. Singing. On the streets. You've got a little acoustic guitar or something? Nope. Just a voice. It's a powerful instrument. Like a mountain. Like a big mountain. I mean, you don't need a pistol when you've got a um, big honking uh, panzer tank. Uh-huh. In this metaphor, the guitar is a tiny pistol and my voice is the, uh, the tank. A Nazi German tank, or a mountain, maybe, right. And singing a cappella by yourself, that's sustaining you? 
I have not made a lot of money, no. I've mostly been surviving on people giving me coffees and drugs. People are surprisingly generous with their drugs, Adam, mostly pills. And at first I was leery, but then I realized the blue and some of the yellow ones really help quell the hunger. I haven't been hungry in, like, uh, two weeks. But with your training, though, like last time you were here, you explained that you trained at Berkeley and you do session backup singing. It's a little surprising that you can't get any money. I mean, I've seen people throw a fiver or a ten and a half for someone who's not even that good. Oh, no. That was a fabrication. I just wanted to get on the show. I didn't even know what Berkeley was. I had to Google good music school. But, I mean, it's less of a lie, more of just a stretch, because I've always felt that with my abilities, it's essentially the equivalent of having that experience. Same diff. And, hey, you know, look, it panned out. It panned out, right? Right, co-host? You are not my co-host. Your girlfriend, she moved with you? No, no, I don't need a girlfriend. I have the podcast, man. I've got you. (sighs) All right. So, Jason, I am so tired, Adam. So, Jason, what's it going to take to make you happy here? Like, what do I got to do? Five, ten minutes in your medicine cabinet. I'll sing a song with you. There, you like singing so much, I will sing a song. Oh, Adam, I thought you'd never ask. What should it be? I literally could not care less. Baby, it's cold outside as it is. What key works best for you? Whatever keys get this over with the quickest, okay? D. D is definitely a speedy key. D is for definitely, definitely D. And E. E is for elephant and L is for L, 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 L. What is L for, Adam? 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 Please? Hold my hand. It'll feel so good and we'll fall asleep and dream of L words. Oh, Adam. Adam. The L word is love. Fine. Good. Okay. I really can't stay. But baby, it's cold outside. Got to go away. But baby, it's cold outside. This evening has been, been hoping that you drop so in. very nice. I'll hold your hands. They're just like ice. I'm a little uncomfortable playing the beautiful. Female. What's your hurry? Huh, it's not an insecurity or it. It's. I mean, I. Listen I just to not the to. fireplace where I'll do both for so I really I'd better scurry. Beautiful, please don't hurry. But maybe just a half drink more. Put some records on while I. You're doing the whole song now. The neighbors might think. Baby, it's bad out there. Say what's in this drink? No Wait, to be no, 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 no. This song is about roofing someone. No, it's a cute little romantic song. It's an L word song. Well, okay, that's another concern, I guess, but you've been pantomiming like an idiot throughout the entire song, and then I literally saw you drop something in my Dr. Pepper while I sang that line. You were pretending to just la-la-la pantomime, but I saw something in your hand, and then immediately after, my pop started fizzing over. Really? Really. First, you're going to ruin the song, the most beloved and beautiful of all holiday-themed songs. Then you dare besmirch the fine art of pantomime, which I minored in at Berkeley. Thank you very much. (laughs) What? (sighs) Okay, to start, you didn't. Also, it's not even by far the most beloved and beautiful holiday-themed song. I wouldn't even technically call it holiday-themed. Oh, okay, thank you very much, Mr. Expert. And what exactly, in your esteemed opinion, would be the most beloved and beautiful holiday-themed song? Silent Night, the Mannheim steamroller version. Well, yeah, okay, of course. Jason? Yes, Adam? Go home! Why are you here? 
Okay, I can tell that you are in a mood. And I can tell from the way you keep scratching yourself and by the yellow jaundiced color of your skin and eyes that you have hep C. Oh, okay, okay, la-di-da, look at me, I'm Adam, I'm too fancy to take free intravenous drugs, whatever, I'll be in my room. Whoa, 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 where did you get the impression that you have a room in my house? Uh, doy, since I've been sleeping there for the last month. What room? There are no extra rooms. Well, you might, I mean, you maybe would probably refer to it as the window well outside your basement egress window. Ooh, I'm Adam, I'd never sleep in a window well, judgmental. Alright, well, the police who I texted uh, three minutes ago should be here shortly. In the meantime, here's some interstitial music because there's no reasonable way to transition out of this. Christmas is coming, the goose is getting fat. And when you notice the goose getting fat, then you know it's time for new glasses frames. For you, not the goose. Where the goose is going, he won't need glasses. Let's not dwell on that. Did you know that Featherwood Frames' frames are made entirely from local wood? You know what else was almost certainly made from local wood? The manger. Yes, that manger. Now, obviously, Featherwood Frames' local wood is local to Ohio, and the manger's local wood was from around Bethlehem, presumably, but Featherwood Frames' frames are also made using only human-powered tools. You know what else was certainly made using only human-powered tools? The manger again, noticing a pattern. And also, glasses frames would make an amazing, unique gift for that special someone, or those special someones, or for someone or someones who aren't especially special, but are nevertheless special to someone. You won't be able to get them by Christmas, you're hearing this far too late for that. But while we're in the Christmas mood, you're probably thinking about gifts, so that's why I bring it up. If you want to know more information, and information that's more helpful, go to featherwoodframes.com. This is a real website for a real business. I can sense your doubt because the way Gentleman's Mills runs their business has caused you to ask fundamental questions about the very concept of commerce, such as, does commerce actually exist? Well, you have to answer that for yourself, but Featherwood Frames makes glasses frames, and if you pay them, they'll make some for you, and you'll like them, and people will use complimenting them as a way to start conversations with you so they can build up to asking you on dates, which I know you'd enjoy because everyone likes to feel attractive, even if, in their heart of hearts, they know their glasses frames are doing most of the heavy lifting. Featherwood Frames. Light as a Featherwood. So after he took a month off, I had uh, hoped, I had, I had thought that maybe we had heard the last of Eugene from Portland, Maine. But no, he's written it again with another round of woodsman wisdom. So I, I guess I'm gonna read that now. It's called "My Country Tis of Trees." Eugene here from Portland, Maine. Sorry I missed the boat last month, listeners. I was in a bit of hot water with my wife due to her being in hot water with her boss due to my recent infatuation with the TV show Lost, a series which I've now both finished and completely changed my tune about. I'll save you the details of that U-turn in my life, but boy, oh boy, do I wish I'd lost interest in that program before the series finale. Anyway, Christmas is near, and since I'm a sucker for the cold air holidays, I thought I'd talk a bit about hunting down your very own Christmas tree. First, a bit of history. The Christmas tree dates back to the early 1960s, as far as I can tell. That's when I saw my first, and I remember asking my dad, Phil, did you hunt and kill that tree yourself? Phil, he's my dad, didn't respond, and to this day I do not know the answer. But the question, I believe, was the most important part of that conversation. 
And just like sap on a pine cone, that question has stuck with me ever since. See, to me, a man who doesn't hunt and kill his own tree is like a car what doesn't make use of its own gasoline, e.g. not worth his weight in pine needles. I remember my first kill. I was 12 years old and out with my friend McDanslin's dad, also named McDanslin. It was a surname. Anyway, McDanslin, the son, was in bed sick with mono, so McDanslin, the dad, after hearing about the tragedy of Phil's indifference towards tree hunting, took me out to the woods for my first wintertime pursuit. We spent an hour or so quietly stepping through the soft dead leaves covering the ground. We must have passed a dozen trees that would do the job, but once we laid eyes on the tree in aisle B7, there was no doubt that it was the specimen we'd been waiting for. It was as if the heavens had parted like the Red Sea and the light of God had showed down upon the mighty sapling. It was a light visible to only me and McDanslin, the dad, that is. How about here on out I just write Mr. McDanslin, and we'll all know I'm speaking of the senior? It was a light visible to only me and Mr. McDanslin. He looked down on me from his formidable grown-up height, squinting with a half-smile, half-grimace on his face, and said, Eugene, this bud's for you. I looked over to our green bud glistening in the crisp winter sun, snow slowly giving way to gravity as it floated downward from the sky, seemingly in competition to land on our recently christened target, Bud. Eugene, he said, snapping me out of my reverie. Here, he nudged a beer into my side. I said, no thanks, Mr. McDanslin. I don't think I like beer. Frankly, I'm more interested in Bud. He again insisted that this Bud was for me, and boy, I couldn't have agreed more. I asked the elf wandering around if he'd help us load up Bud into the back of Mr. McDanslin's truck. The elf agreed, but on the condition that Mr. McDanslin stopped drinking beer on the premises. Mr. McDanslin pretended to not hear the elf, but the elf insisted. In an act somehow both of defiance and compliance, Mr. McDanslin gulped the rest of his beer down in a single chug before squeezing the can and casually dropping it on the ground. Ornament, he then said in kind of a wet, rambling burp. There was a silence. Mr. McDanslin glared angrily at the elf and pointed at the can, blinking in what I'd describe as a kind of Christmassy rhythm. The elf opened his eyes particularly wide and looked away from us, sighing. Ornament, Mr. McDanslin repeated, slightly louder and considerably less burpy, but the elf was out of sight, already carrying Bud to the truck. On the ride home, I beamed with pride. Bud was the Christmas equivalent of a multi-point buck or maybe a bear or something, something big, a true prize, that's for sure, and I'd been the one to snatch it. Nowadays, Heather, she's my wife, insists on having a plastic Christmas tree in the house due to various fire safety issues and a therapist recommendation to help in reduction of holiday stress and seasonal affective disorder. I keep telling her over and over again the story of Bud and how important it is for a man to bring home his own kill on this annual holiday hunt. No luck, though, not with my Heather, indoorsy Heather. Sweet as a sweet tart she is, my Heather, but just not built for the out-of-doors like such a man as myself. Anyway, I suppose that's all for this time. And remember, this winter season, this bud could be for you. Because due to Heather and all, it's apparently not in the cards for me. Not this season anyway. But heck, maybe you, right? Right. Maybe you. Well, <clears throat> I guess... That's it for Woodsman Wisdom this time. Maybe there will be more. Who knows? 
close your eyes. Are you already sitting back and relaxing in a comfortable position? If so, you've just saved us some time. For that, I am grateful. But you should also be grateful to yourself for saving yourself some time, too. With a visualization exercise, what's good for me is also good for you. And that's true all of the time. Okay, sermon over. <laughs> and with the conclusion of that quote-unquote sermon, you find yourself in a landscape that can only be described as a wonderful winterland. Snow covers the earth and evergreens surround you, boughs laden with snow that didn't quite make it to earth. A country road, the snow upon which is packed hard and slick, winds among these evergreens, and waiting for you thereupon is a Christmas sleigh, painted red and gold and drawn by two silver horses with garlands and red ribbons braided into their tails. One of the horses is wearing a lot of eyeliner. Too much. Don't ask. You crunch through the deep snow in your boots, your legs making a zup zup sound as you walk because you're clad in a sporty snowmobile suit, and you walk up to the sleigh and the horses. You give each horse a pat on their respective rumps, the universal sign of woe fella, which all horses learn during fullhood. The implied fella can mean a male or a female horse in the context of a rump pat, as in when one approaches a table of both men and women in a restaurant and says, hey guys, and all the assembled people, men and women, snort good-naturedly in response, just as the two horses do when you pat their rumps before climbing into the sleigh. The seat in the sleigh is wide enough to accommodate two people, but you're only as wide as one person, and there's a pile of thick, soft blankets for you to drape over your lap or wrap around your shoulders in case you want to get even warmer and also look like a frail old person. You look around for a whip, for how else are you going to get the sleigh moving? But there isn't a whip, so you just say, yah, and off you go at a brisk trot, the sleigh gliding through the snow just as the great sleigh mason designed it to do. Builders of sleighs are called masons, just like stoneworkers, and the great sleigh mason is a pretty good one, so you're pretty fortunate to be riding in one of his better, earlier period sleighs. As you sleigh along the country road and sleigh past the noble pines and nobler firs, all of which are further ennobled by their raiment of snow, you try to get over your disappointment over the absence of a whip, and you do. Now you can just enjoy yourself. And just in time, for here comes another round of snow, loosed forth by the gray and graying clouds overhead. You tilt your head back and open your mouth to catch a snowflake on your tongue. Do you succeed? Only after hearing the following sentence will you know for sure. Yes, you succeed in catching a snowflake on your tongue, and it tastes exactly like crystallized water molecules dipped in a spicy ranch sauce. Returning your head to a normal-looking forward position so that your mouth and nose don't fill with snow, thereby blocking all your airways and killing you, you notice on the inside of the front of the sleigh a small green button next to a thin horizontal slot. Cat-like in regard to your curiosity, you lean forward and mash the button with both of your thrice-mittened hands. Yes, you heard right. You're wearing mittens again, but this time you've got them layered 3 deep be hard-pressed to write on a post-it note with a quill pen right now. Anyway, upon pressing the button, you hear a grinding and a clunking and a recording of the melodious strains of Bing Crosby parody artist Bing Commie's little-known non-hit, I'm Plotting for a Red Christmas. Then, with a festive seasonal click, 
a piece of paper emerges from the horizontal slot. Your hands being unequal to the task of grasping the piece of paper loose, you lean forward and tear it loose with your teeth, dropping it in your own lap so you can read it. It says, L, colon, my legs are burning in a good way and I enjoy exercise. R, colon, I wonder if the snow is making my eyeliner run. Why, it's the current thoughts of the two horses pulling the sleigh printed out on a piece of paper for you to read. L meaning the horse on the left and R meaning the horse on the right. It's worth noting that this function of the sleigh was not the work of the great sleigh mason, but rather a later edition by noted sleigh pimper Rudolph the Red-Nosed Man. The country road runs out of the evergreen forest and through a snow-covered meadow where you spy a snowman with a zebra-striped scarf bordered with pink lace, a button nose, eyes made of diamonds, a black top hat, and it appears as if whoever built the snowman doesn't know what a corncob pipe is because there's an old corncob just jammed into his face around where a mouth would be. As you watch, the snowman turns around under his own power to attempt to flag down your sleigh. The top hat must be magically imbuing him with life or some rough approximation thereof. Always the scoundrel, you scrape together the snow that is accumulated on the seat next to you, form it into a sort of loosely packed snow blob, manage to balance it on the palm side of the outermost mitten on your throwing hand, and you hurl it at the living snowman, striking his hat and knocking it off of his head. Although the loss of his hat does not cause the living snowman to revert back to a regular snowman, it does allow his long black hair to come spilling out, cascading down to the middle of his back. And furthermore, you now notice that there is smoke rising from the end of the corncob jammed into his face. It may not be a corncob pipe, but by golly he's smoking it, or else it's just on fire. And now the snow stops, the clouds recede, night descends. The moon rises, and all is calm and still but for the whisper of the sleigh in the snow. And now the horses pull the sleigh up over a hill and down into a secluded valley filled with smaller evergreens, all strung with brightly colored lights and decorated with sparkling tinsel. These are no ordinary evergreens, friend. These are Christmas trees, a holiday tradition. The horses bear your sleigh in among the Christmas trees, so close that their fancy branches brush against the sides of the sleigh and the horses' flanks. And then you emerge into a perfectly circular clearing, and in the middle of the clearing is a life-size plastic nativity scene, with a Joseph, a Mary, a baby Jesus, some oxen, a donkey, some shepherds with attendant sheep, and two wise men. Only two? And then you see it, neatly folded on the snow behind the second wise man, a pile of wise man clothes. And I'd be willing to bet they're in your size. The sleigh stops and you climb out. The horses avert their eyes as you remove your snowmobile suit. The cold air on your skin is bracing. You don the wise man clothes, shimmering and flowy and exotic alien. You look wise. You take your place in line behind the second wise man. The horses give you a nod, circle once around the nativity scene, and depart with the sleigh. And now you are alone in the clearing with the plastic figures of the nativity. Illuminated by the moon and the multicolored lights of the Christmas trees and the silence is all enveloping and you do not feel wise, but you do wonder how that horse applied eyeliner with its hooves when you could barely press a button with your layered mittens. You have gained new respect for that horse, and is that not something a wise man would do? You have not moved since you took your place in the nativity scene. No passers-by passing by would ever know that you have not also been formed from molded plastic. Peace abounds. Somewhere in the world, a choir of prepubescent boys is singing Silent Night. 
that you can't hear it, but you of all people on earth do not need to hear it. For you, in your wise man's garb and with your wise man's mounting wisdom, now know the true silence of the night. Now listen or come back, but do not leave that peace behind. No, bring that peace with you. Bring a piece of that peace, at least, please. Huh. Assonance. And now mix that peace with the peace of out of all doors, and allow that potent peace mixture to go with you, even when you're inside of one or more doors. Thank you for listening to the fourth episode of Out of All Doors. I'm Adam Durant, and I would like to thank Matt Martin, Andy Poppenfuss, J.J. Evans, Steve Tartaglioni, Grang Lynch, Casey Bai, and Aaron Eikenberry for their contributions, written, audible, and technical. And thanks to Casey Bai and J.J. Evans for making all the music used in the show. If you'd like to get in touch for any reason, you can send emails to the show at outofalldoors at gmail.com or me personally at adamdurant at gmail.com. You can also call or text me at 574-518-1983. I'd love to hear from you. And I'm active on Twitter, too. I'm at Huge Pop. Here's another thing I'd love. If you went on iTunes and rated this podcast, maybe wrote a review, maybe even subscribed, and be sure to check out my website, hugepop.com, where you can find links to my other projects, including Bedtime Stories, One Man's World, and the music I make is The Mispronouncer. Bedtime Stories and One Man's World are also on iTunes if you search for them under podcasts, and you could rate and review those too. And a Bedtime Stories app is also available for all smart-style phones. We'll be back in a month with Episode 5 of Out of All Doors. 